For some, especially people of color, the desire to get one of the COVID-19 vaccines isn't there. A very big concern about how speedily this vaccine was made. They kind of feel like it's related to some political agenda. Not understanding that the technology behind this vaccine has been, been used for 20 years. But that's not the only reason. The sins of the past are still fresh in some communities. There's a large history of data that goes with that, from J. Marion Sims, who performed a lot of operations on slave women back in the day without anesthesia, perfected his technique, and then used it on white women with anesthesia. Of eugenics in North Carolina, where people were sterilized against their will or unknowingly to themselves. All of these factors play a role for why we're reticent to participate in these types of activities. However, this pandemic could be the turning point for better health outcomes. This is an opportunity for us to change our health perspective from being reactive. I wait until I get sick in order to access health care to proactive. I'm going to do something to prevent myself from getting this type of infection. I'm Rich Clindworth, and we're talking about why some communities, especially people of color, are skeptical of the COVID-19 vaccines in season two, episode 13 of Talk Like a Pirate. Dr. Cedric Bright has been a physician for over 30 years and is the past president of the National Medical Association. He is currently the Associate Dean for Admissions here at ECU's Brody School of Medicine, as well as the Interim Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion and a professor of internal medicine. Dr. Bright, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Before we begin, there's a little bit of a disclaimer here. We are recording this episode of Talk Like a Pirate inside of ECU's Brody School of Medicine, so we might sound a little bit muffled as we are wearing masks while being socially distant. Now that that is out of the way, Dr. Bright, are different communities having issues with COVID-19? Oh, by far. Uh, we know that uh, the African-American community, the black community, is being disproportionately impacted by COVID. We're maybe 15% of the national population, but with 25% of people who are being infected with the COVID virus, and with 39% of the people who have succumbed to the COVID virus. In fact, it's been noted in one study that one in every 800 African-Americans in this country has succumbed to this COVID virus. One in 800. So why is that? Is it the lack of ability to get proper health care or does it have to do with any genetic predisposition? No, I don't think that that's the reason. I think there's a multifactorial reason. Part of it is access. Access is tough because, you know, in order to get access to health care, uh, you have to have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, then you rely on, on safety, net, uh, safety net community health centers, okay? Uh, and then you're talking about populations that are mostly essential workers that work hourly jobs. And how many times do they have to pay when they go see the doctor? Well, first they pay by having to take time off of work because they don't have paid sick leave. Then they have to pay for whatever gas they have to use in order to get there or whatever means of transportation that they have to use to get there. Then they have to pay the copay up front to be seen. Then if there's any prescription that's done after that, they have to pay for that. And then if there's any bill that occurs after that, they have to pay for that. So, you know, for those people who are, for people, not those people, but for people, our fellow humans who work hourly wages, 
access is very difficult for those five reasons, that they have to pay five different times. And let's not even mention if there's a facility fee, okay, which is another fee that is often added on, whereas folks with insurance, we don't have to think about that. What this sets up is a paradigm of two different types of health in America. There's the health in America that people have that they want to maintain, and they use their insurance to do that. Then there's the part about health that is something I have until I lose it, and it stops me from being able to do my job, and now I must go seek help. That's the paradigm that it sets up between those that have a working class versus those who are not working class. Why is it important to get as many people vaccinated as possible? Well, I think it's so important to get people vaccinated because we don't want to wait till everybody gets COVID to develop herd immunity. That's our goal. Our goal is to develop herd immunity. And the way that you do that, either by catching the virus itself or by um, being vaccinated. And so that's why there's a push to really get everybody vaccinated. Because we've seen that the more people that become infected, the more people get sick, the more people get sick, the more they go to hospitals, the more they go to hospitals. We have uh, increased mortality rates with that. And so any way that we can mitigate that by using the vaccine is, is the way that we need to be moving. Are the COVID-19 vaccines safe? The COVID-19 vaccine is a safe vaccine. Yes, I myself have already had my two shots. And? And I'm still here. <laughs> that's, a, that's always the big question. Uh, whenever you say you got the vaccine and right, right yeah, there's right. always that concern. Is there a difference between the two approved right now, the Pfizer one and the Moderna one? For the most part, no. They're, they're pretty much the same technology, just two different companies working parallel tracks. So what are you hearing from our different communities? the Latinx community, the African-American community, other marginalized communities within Eastern North Carolina whenever it comes to the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccines? Well, what I'm hearing uh, is, number one, a very big concern about uh, how speedily this vaccine was made. So some people don't trust it because, it, in fact, that's the number one reason. It was made so quickly. And so people kind of don't know the science, so they kind of feel like it's related to some political agenda that uh, we needed to rush this vaccine to get here. Not understanding that the technology behind this vaccine has been, been used for 20 years. And so, uh, and other vaccines have been made from this, such as the N1H1 vaccine and the SARS vaccine. And so, People don't quite understand that, and that's just, you know, a lack of scientific knowledge. And more importantly, it's kind of uh, because we've had so much controversy over what is true and what is truth that it's hard for real facts to, to really take hold because there's so much misinformation out here. So the number one thing was that they were rushed. This study was from the Kaiser Foundation that looked at attitudes of people across the nation. The second thing was that the vaccine, the side effects of the vaccine, they're not sure whether the side effects of the vaccine, is it too expensive? A lot of people are concerned about the cost of the vaccine. About 17% of people think it's too expensive. Side effects was 47%, and the vaccine being rushed was 53% of people said that they, that was the main reason and concern they had about the vaccine. 
Another 17% thought that you could get COVID from the vaccine, which we know is not true because there's no vaccine, there's no COVID particles in the vaccine. And then last but not least, that there are harmful ingredients within the vaccine that may impact their DNA. And of course, we now know that that's not the case either. Why do you think that there's so much information out there because of these vaccines? I think it's mostly because of fear. I think people who are seeing people get sick with COVID and realizing how deadly it can be, who have lost loved ones, uh, they, they recognize this as, as a serious threat to humanity. And therefore, I think there's a real sense of fear. And so with fear comes a lot of misinformation. And what we need to do is we need to start uh, speaking to that fear and helping people address their fear with knowledge. Because when we can give people knowledge, it, it assuages the fear. And let me just say, when we talk about fear, I always like the mnemonic, fear is false evidence appearing real, okay? And for many people, there's a lot of false evidence out here that really seems real to them because they've heard the message so many times, so many times. That's why we have to address that fear, that false evidence appearing real with facts as a means of trying to, in, to decrease that fear. So how can you differentiate with what is true information and what is misinformation? Because a lot of misinformation looks real or at least has a little aspect or two that is real. So the way, the way that you uh, validate information is you have to go to trusted sources. Um, you have to have people that have had the training and that people that you know do the research and that give you messages that you know will be true because they've done the research. And so that's where Dr. Falky comes in such great hands. You know, he's been uh, a great debunker of, of myths this year uh, during this pandemic. Uh, you have to look to the CDC. You know, you have to look to NIH and look at the type of the National Health Institutes and the, C the Center for Disease Control, CDC. Uh, because these are our experts that have spent their careers learning this information it's because they want to protect us as humans, as fellow humans. And so therefore, we have to look to those trusted sources for information and not just something that shows up on your web space that says, you're not going to believe this, you know. And so that's, that's what we have to do. And I think building off that, some of the some of the issues with that are people who we respect, who we're friends with on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, they get drawn into this. And since it came from someone that you respect their opinion, it's like, oh, I'm more apt to believe that. Mm -hmm. But that's why there's the second step to that. And that's trust, but verify. Okay? So you can trust somebody as a trusted source, but when you hear something that may sound odd, Go look it up yourself. You know, we all have to have our own uh, intellectual curiosity. And if we don't have that type of intellectual curiosity, we just take things at face value. And so we must all have some means of going to be an investigator for ourselves, going to look for things ourselves. When we go vote for a candidate, we must investigate that candidate to see what their platform is, right, before we give them their, our vote, right? Likewise, it is with science. Now, and what you need to do is be able to use the trusted sources to do that type of research to validate what you think your trusted source may have stated. We hear it all the time that 
different non-white communities are more skeptical about clinical trials and vaccines. Why is that? Well, I, 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 there's a large history of data that goes with that from the aspects of J. Marion Sims, and who was the father of gynecology, who performed a lot of operations on slave women back in the day without anesthesia, perfected his technique, and then used it on white women with anesthesia. That's one aspect of it. We could talk about the aspect of eugenics in North Carolina, where people were sterilized against their will unknowingly to themselves uh, because it was determined that they were not of the class that they wanted to have to reproduce. Uh, you can look at the, the U.S. health study in Tuskegee and how it impacted the black men down there, black men, black men, women, and their families for generations because uh, they have had, uh, were not treated with the antidote, which was penicillin, uh, and allowed them just to go on to see how the, the, the disease manifests itself over time. So when you think about that, then there's the, you know, it, institutional barriers that, that you know, Jim Crow, all, all of these factors play a role for why we're reticent to participate in these types of activities. And so what we have to do is, once again, we have to get back to our trusted voices. And what we have found is that if African Americans have physicians that they have a, a close relationship with, and that physician recommends for them to participate in a clinical trial, they're more apt to participate in it because they have a trusted voice. And certainly research has, has, has changed tremendously since then. We have informed consent now, and we have IRBs, institutional review boards, that review protocols to make sure for human safety, okay? And on top of that, because you enroll in a clinical trial doesn't mean you have to stay in it. You can opt out of a clinical trial at any time without any type of, of uh, retribution to you. Folks don't really understand all of that. We haven't taken our time to really explain that to people. And so I, I was very pleased this year to see the number. On, I'm on Twitter. Let me say that. And being on Twitter, in a, we're in a group called Med Twitter. There's an awful lot of African-American physicians who volunteer to participate in the clinical trials for these vaccines. Uh, and to me, that, that, was, that, was, that was groundbreaking. That was, that was the beginning of a new movement of helping people to understand our role in being part of these trials in order to ensure efficacy for our own community. When our leaders are willing to put their lives in, in, in not on the line, but put their lives in, in abeyance to try something such as this and then have it work, helps to be able to develop that trusted message to come back to our African-American community and say, your physician did this, you, we, should, we should do this. Do you feel as being a black physician an increased sense of duty to be a role model? <laughs> Great question. Um, I will say this, one of the reasons why I am in academic medicine is because when I came through myself, I had no physicians like me to look up to and therefore I kind of had that uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, I felt like I did not belong. And the more that I spent time in clinical medicine, the more that message was continually spoken to me. And what I had, what I had to realize was that I just needed to graduate. Because after I graduate, then I can make my own narrative after that. 
So one of the things that I tell students is sometimes you have to downplay for a season such that you can display for a lifetime, okay? And what I've been able to do in my lifetime is to be able to display and be a role model for people who wanted to go the same path that looked like me, who talk like me, who come from backgrounds like me, uh, and even for those who don't. You know, I, can, I role model for everybody because I can work with everybody. I am a human. I just so happen to have this peculiar pigment. But under all of that, as we know from genomics, we're 99.9% .9 all the same. So basically, we need to approach it from my, my fellow human perspective as opposed to these racial divides that we put in that were social constructs. There's no biological aspect of race. It's all a social construct that was put together in order to develop valuation. Who is more valuable? Who gets more resources? Uh, that was a long-winded answer to say, yes, I am a role model. It's, it's by force and by choice. Did you ever have concerns with vaccines, with you growing up and then getting into healthcare? Great question. Boy, you should have seen the image just popped in my head. Uh, when I was a little boy, I was known as a runner. Every time the doctor said, you got to get a shot, I would get up out that, off that table and start trying to run out of that room as fast as I could. And, you know, my father used to have to go with me to those doctor's appointments because he would have to catch me and hold me while I got the shot. And I would be fighting and fighting and fighting because, you know, I, I just hated shots. I hated needles. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to go into medicine is because I always thought it's better to give than receive. I'd rather give a shot than have to take a shot. <laughs> so from that perspective, you know, yeah, I had a tremendous fear of needles as a, young, as a youngster. Uh, but as I got older, I, became, I, I, I came into the knowledge of understanding science and what the, the mechanism behind vaccines were and why they were important. And although I still have a fear of needles, I don't run anymore. Getting back to the Tuskegee atrocities, uh, I guess, what is the proper name for that? I call it the United States Health Services Experiment in Tuskegee. Everybody calls it the Tuskegee syphilis study, right? But Tuskegee didn't perform the study. It was the United States Health Services that performed the study. And they like to make that delineation very clear because it taints their city. Interesting. Yes. I've been to Tuskegee on multiple occasions and I've been corrected multiple times. So, yes. So a situation with that, with that experimentation, because there are still people around who were involved with that. Does that also fill in the fear of what could be going on? Well, actually the last victims, I believe, died in 2000, in either 2005 or 2009. Okay. Uh, but their descendants are still around. And there's actually a group um, that is the group of, of uh, descendants of those participants that uh, have a, a strong web presence that I am forgetting the name of, and I know somebody's going to kill me for that, but because uh, I just learned about it the other day. Uh, but they are very active in, in helping keeping that legacy alive. Uh, but yes, I still, I think that that is um, a, a specter over 
over what we think. You know, it's, it's something that's in the back of our minds that we're reminded of that makes us uh, mis be, be kind of apprehensive. Uh, but I, I think that as we move forward and have a better understanding and better relationships with our physicians uh, and our providers, because not everybody has a physician, people have PAs, they have nurse practitioners, all of us who are in this healthcare arena have to make sure that we're giving our trusted messages to our patients to help mitigate the type of angst and apprehension they have toward either vaccines or healthcare in general. I mean, how do you convince people that at age 45 you need to get a colonoscopy? You know, uh, but that's very important because we know that in the African-American population that gastric cancer uh, and uh, GI cancers occur at earlier ages. So that's why the recommendation is to start getting colonoscopies at 45 in the African-American population, but for the general population it's 50. Unless, of course, you have a family history and then that's 30, it could be earlier than that. How can we best serve our African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, Native American, and rural communities better when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccines and correcting misinformation? Once again, we, I, I think we need to address this by getting back to trusted sources. But we also, we also need to be cognizant of who's impacted the most. And so as we're rolling out this vaccine, yes, I understand healthcare workers and people who are forward facing to the public. But then we need to stop and think about who's the population that is having the most deaths from this. And then how do we address that? Because if we mitigate the least, it helps the most, okay? And so in that particular instance, you know, we need to look at how we rolling this out to our communities, our communities of color, our communities of essential workers, our communities of multi-generational housing. You know, I find it somewhat peculiar that the 75-year-old and 78-year-old grandmother and grandfather can go get the shot, but if they have a child that's in their house that, that never left, that's a 45-year-old child at home that may even have a kid that they have there too, you know, those people can't get, in, get the vaccine at the same time because we have different delineations of which group can get what. And so we're very concerned about that and how that impacts communities that have multi-generational housing. And so uh, there, there are a lot of different things that we need to think about as we roll out this vaccine and how we can make sure that we target our most vulnerable populations. Because uh, once again, when you protect the most vulnerable, it helps everybody else. Dr. Bright, your final thoughts before we wrap this up? I, I would say that the, the main thing that we need to know is we know that COVID is real. We know that COVID has impacted our community greater than has impacted other communities. But this is an opportunity for us to change our health perspective. This is an opportunity for us to go from being reactive. I wait until I get sick to in order to access health care to proactive, I'm gonna do something to prevent myself from getting this type of infection. And so that's why I think that we need to take this moment in history and kind of change our perspective and take more control of our health and be instead of being so passive with our health. Dr. Cedric Bright, Associate Dean for Admissions, Interim Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, and a professor of internal medicine, all here at ECU's Brody School of Medicine. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss these most important issues.
Well, that's it for season two, episode 10 of Talk Like a Pirate. We really hope this helps with your understanding of the COVID-19 vaccines and any apprehension you might have. And remember, always verify with trusted sources like the CDC or your physician. We always appreciate your time, so thank you so much for listening. Until the next time, please stay safe and healthy, and don't forget, always be yourself, unless you can be a pirate, then always be a pirate.